Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Ben Rhodes. And I'm Alex Wagner. Alex Wagner joins us today as our guest host. Thank you so much, Alex, who wears many hats. Uh, <laughs> co-host of Showtime's hit show, The Circus. Brand new Woo! MSNBC contributor and guest host. Do you want to say a word about that? Yeah, I just, um, you know, I grew up at the MSNBC family, in the MSNBC family. And like the prodigal son, I've returned and I'm now a, I think the official title is senior political analyst because I've gotten old in my time away. Wait a second. Wait a second. Do you know I'm a political analyst? Does that mean that you are well, senior to me officially? Yeah. I mean, we've always known it, but now it's just <laughs> yeah, formalized. No, it's, no, it's we've always known that I'm just a few notches above you, Ben, because um, of all my experience in the White House and negotiating international agreements. That's why I get the senior title and you don't. Um, yes. And uh, and I'm a guest anchor. So you'll see me in the anchor chair shortly. Um, wow. Trying well, to fill other people's big shoes. The roles might be reversed uh, one of these days. Uh, you can ask me questions on MSNBC. Oh, I mean, that's why I took this gig to begin <laughs> yeah, with. Yeah. It's just and- trying to get more TV time with you. Well, and people can follow you everywhere. Circus, MSNBC, the Sometimes Atlantic, for the Atlantic. From time to time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So it's always a good there. day when you and I share bylines on the homepage. Yes. You're in the marketplace of ideas. Well, today <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. Um, we are going to obviously give the latest on the Russia-Ukraine situation. Uh, we are going to talk about the prospects of uh, an Iran deal 2.0. We're going to check in on some crazy things happening in... Canada and uh, <laughs> with our friend Boris Johnson uh, in the UK. Uh, we have an ISIS leader uh, who was uh, killed since our last uh, podcast. Um, so a, a lot to cover here. And then I, uh, Alex and I will also be looking back at the one year anniversary of the uh, tragic coup in, in Burma. Uh, then I'll be talking to the prime minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas, about her perspective as a NATO member bordering Russia uh, and as one of the younger and more dynamic uh, leaders uh, on on the European scene. Um, But that leads us back to where we're going to start today, which is Russia, Ukraine. So, Alex, I'm just going to go through the latest. And then there are a couple of things I thought we could unpack. Uh, First of all, the center of gravity shifted uh, to some extent to French President Emmanuel Macron, uh, who flew uh, to Moscow and met with Putin yesterday um, at a very large table, if you haven't seen uh, the picture. Maybe like a da- custom-made table It's so large. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that was a social distancing thing, but uh, it's a very big table. Um, anyway, it didn't appear it went that well. Macron said that uh, there wouldn't be further escalation, that Putin promised him that there would not be further escalation and, and that there'd be time to pursue a diplomatic resolution. Um, the Kremlin, though, uh, after Macron left, uh, essentially said that he didn't have the status to negotiate uh, the issues at stake because he's not the leader of NATO, um, uh, making the point that the U.S. has to be the one to negotiate on the terms of Russia's demands that NATO pull back uh, basically to where it was in, in 1997 and not admit new members. Macron, though, uh, soldiered on. He went on to uh, Ukraine today where he met with uh, President Zelensky. Um, from Ukraine's standpoint, Uh, They reiterated what they called red lines, uh, which is that there can't be any infringement on their sovereignty uh, and that they get to determine their own foreign policy, um, which would suggest that they're not uh, open to a a pledge to never join uh, NATO. So it doesn't feel like we're any further to a resolution here. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, 
President Biden met with the new German Chancellor Schultz, Otto Schultz. Um, I guess the headline coming out of that meeting was Biden vowed that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that goes from uh, that's scheduled to come online that takes uh, gas from Russia to Germany won't happen. It'll be stopped one way or another, presumably either by U.S. sanctions or by German action if Russia does invade Ukraine. A lot of effort to try to project unity. <laughs> um, Biden said that he and, and Germany are in lockstep on this. Uh, Schultz reiterated that Russia would pay a high price uh, if it invades Ukraine. But again, Germany has been a bit of an outlier in, in, in threatening uh, stronger sanctions. Mood music generally, uh, not great. Um, the NATO secretary general said uh, that uh, uh, NATO itself is considering long-term adjustments to its posture, particularly in the East, uh, which seems to run counter to what Russia wants, which is NATO not <laughs> being present uh, in the East. The EU foreign policy chief said Europe is facing its most serious security threat since the Cold War. And Russia and China yeah. uh, had a meeting, yes. And uh, in, in this to me is maybe actually the headline of last week, uh, Xi Jinping and Putin met in Beijing around the beginning of the Olympics, issued a pretty sweeping joint statement um, that was full of kind of hyperbole, uh, very confrontational to the U.S. and the West. Um, uh, you know, uh, an excerpt, uh, Russia and China stand against attempts by external forces to undermine security and stability in their common adjacent regions, intend to counter interference by outside forces in the internal affairs of sovereign countries under any pretext, oppose color revolutions, and will increase cooperation. That's a long way of saying China backs Russia's stance on no more NATO enlargement, and Russia backs whatever the hell China wants to do on Taiwan, uh, and the U.S. should just accept that uh, the old international order doesn't exist anymore, and Russia and China are going to call the shots. That's kind of how I read the statement. Um, last thing, we saw more kind of warnings coming out of the administration, uh, including one intelligence assessment that Russia could see, seize Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, in a matter of days, and that 50,000 civilian casualties could uh, suffer in a Russian invasion or 50,000 casualties uh, across the board. Um, so administration continuing to, to beat the drumbeat. So Alex, great a lot podcast. Thanks for having me on. Bye. <laughs> yeah, a lot to unpack there. <laughs> yeah, let's start. I want to start with this last one because we've seen a lot of warnings, you know, warnings about Russian false flag videos that could be used as a pretext for an invasion, warnings about the imminence of an invasion, warning about the number of casualties. Uh, President Biden saying even that Americans should leave Ukraine. Um, what do you make of, uh, you know, someone who's covered foreign policy and politics, this is a bit of a new tack to be this transparent about intelligence we have about something. Uh, how is that, in your mind, affecting the the politics around this and the kind of international diplomacy around this? Well, I mean, I think for certain, when you're that explicit about potential casualties and when you're that explicit about how sort of threatened the old world order is, I think it was referred to in the Washington Post as potentially Cold War II, it certainly gets the the message across to an American audience and to an international audience, but I tend to think it's also strategic, right? Like nobody wants to go to war in Ukraine. Um, and it's, it's as much speaking to Putin as it is to anyone else, which is to say, this is going to be really, really bad. Are you sure you want to do this? I mean, it's one tack to take. I think it's very much a hallmark of the Biden administration, which has been radically transparent about all kinds of negotiations. Sometimes that's worked out for them. Sometimes it hasn't. You know, all the negotiation on the Hill around Build Back Better, all the sort of, I'm the president who's going to roll up his sleeves and get in the mud pit. I'm the person that's going to tell, I'm going to be honest with you. That was Biden's whole kind of tagline. That's flowing through to foreign policy. 
But again, I think it has a strategic goal as well, which is let's convince Putin this is going to be so painful that compromise is where is the door he should pick, if you will. I don't know, yeah, though. I mean, I think yeah. nobody's enjoying this more than Vladimir Putin, right? Like, I just yeah, feel like he's yeah. feasting on it. There's a reason that table was so big. It's delicious to him. I mean, yeah, everybody's yeah. talking about NATO. Everyone's talking about Ukraine. Everyone's talking about the power of Russia. That's what he wants. Yeah, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, I admire elements of the strategy in the sense that it doesn't allow Russia to control the information environment. Like actually, in a strange way, the U.S. has been controlling the information environment, putting all this stuff out. Um, and, you know, it gives you a pretext to try to get the Europeans on board with things like sanctions before the war happens, because you're talking about it before and not just after. On the other hand, you know, it does make Putin just the center of global attention, which is something he loves to be. I, I guess the question I have for you, though, is that as someone who watches politics, does it matter in, at all that they've been this explicit that something might happen if it happens? Like if there's an invasion, um, are people more prepared for this and therefore it won't be as big a surprise? Or, and, and maybe people understand that the Biden administration did everything they could, uh, or does it make it look like, you know, you've been warning about something and you couldn't stop it? I mean, I know politics is a secondary concern to Ukraine, but uh, what, do you, what do you think this does in the event of an invasion? Well... I mean, I'm going to be incredibly cynical. Um, I I just think the American audience is really numb to the idea of casualties overseas and casualties incurred in a military conflict. I mean, right? Like that's kind of been our posture for, I mean, since I've been an adult, there have been, yeah. there, you know, and um, I think what's more resonant is the idea that this is Cold War II, that this is bigger than just, I mean, not that 50,000 casualties is, is anything short of horrifying, but this is a reordering of the world. This is a new existential threat to America. That has resonance because basically to get the American audience engaged and concerned, you just, it's like a terrible series of blockbuster movies. The pyrotechnics have to be bigger. The, the on-screen crashes have to be bigger. The sound has to be louder. And that's where we've gotten in terms of um, military engagement for people to truly care for it to become a political issue for better or for worse. Um, I think. So the- basically, so if the, there's no U S troops involved in a conflict, the degree of interest from the American people even if this is a large conflagration and, and Europe may be more minimal than people might think? I mean, I think it's, I listen, I'm not co-signing that it won't yeah, have yeah, residence, yeah, yeah. residence, but yeah, I mean, I think that's where, I, I mean, from my work in journalism and my, you know, understanding of uh, an American audience's appetite and interest in foreign policy and, uh, you know, the American military or the military in general, unless it is something that really directly affects them and feels like something that they are palpably afraid of or excited by, it just doesn't hit with the same resonance. I mean, I think, you know, the the peril for the Biden administration is what you mentioned before. Could this be used as a political cudgel because they've telegraphed so much of what could happen? And if they are unable to prevent those things from unfolding, I mean, you know, you can bet that it will be withdrawal from Afghanistan part two. And the Republican party will say, look at, look at this, look look at amateur hour here. Look at, look at this mess. Even if the American audience doesn't particularly 
care about what's happening, there are political ramifications that can be um, co-opted back home by a party that has shown no signs of having any inhibitions to, you know, scrape at the bottom of the the lowest barrel. Yeah. And you've seen uh, Macron out there with uh, Putin, um, Schultz, the German chancellor's due to go to Moscow in a few days himself. Uh, Boris Johnson, who we'll get to in a second, went to Ukraine, not to Russia. Biden's obviously had his calls with Putin. Uh, what, what's your impression of this slate of leaders, um, Alex? Uh, what did you, any main takeaways from the, the French diplomacy here? It's like the West Side Story reboot, you know, and you're like, oh, it's not the classics. Maybe they'll be kind of as good as the originals, but I'm not, I don't know. I got to say, Ben, it's, look, they've been thrown into the deep end pretty, I mean, in, and you've, you've mentioned this on this podcast before. This is not a great time for any of them, right? Like, Macron has a re-election. Schultz is brand new. You know, energy is a big deal in Germany yeah. when it comes to Russia. Biden is where he is, you know, uh, domestically. Um, my heart goes out to them. But I, I, I see something happening here that reminds me of what happens at home vis-a-vis Putin and the far right wing, which is do outlandish things and change what is normal, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's yeah. the playbook that's being run here in the U.S., in Canada, right? Yeah. And in Russia. I mean, everybody yeah. is working from the same set of new standards now. We're discussing whether you, like, we're, we're talking about the contours of Ukrainian serenity. We're talking about, you know, a settled idea of NATO expansion. We're talking, you know, everything's on the table because Putin has amassed 130,000 troops on the border and is like, come on, go ahead and cross me. And like that reminds me of, I mean, it's it's the brinkmanship politics are so reminiscent of everything Trump did, of what's happening in Canada with the truckers. It's like basically go in, it's up January 6th, go in there with the craziest, most ridiculous, awful, outlandish, over-the-top um, strategy and reset the goalposts so that they then have to talk to you about whether or not January 6th was legitimate political discourse. So that they then have to talk to you about like just how, you know, where Ukraine is, where NATO is, what what unwinding we may do on that front. I mean, these were not conversations that anybody thought we were going to be having five years yeah. ago, but we are. I think that's really smart. I mean, because there there is something to this idea that what Putin does in Geopolitics is kind of what the far right does in politics generally yeah. uh, as a disruptor and as someone busting norms and making people adjust. And in the same way that, you know, political leaders in this country have struggled to respond to the emergence of the far Trumpian right. Um, you know, you, you got Biden trying to take a pretty firm line with Putin. You've got Macron trying to be the, the guy who's trying to negotiate anything he can negotiate, even if Russia isn't interested in negotiating. You know, you know you've got Schultz just kind of almost trying to like, wish the thing wasn't happening, you know, um, everybody's trying something different. And it's hard when you're dealing with somebody in Vladimir Putin, who's just not playing by any recognized rules. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I continue to think like people should be watching in terms of timeline of this, you know, the, the, the end of the Olympics, um, is also around the time that Russia said that they'd be ending this military exercise in Belarus, which is the pretext for them to have a whole bunch of troops here. They could always just keep them there anyway. Uh, but it still feels to me like, you know, eh, like about a week from now, um, uh, we we at least might know more. But but the only person who knows is, is Vladimir Putin. But does um, Xi Jinping know? He knows, right? So this is interesting to me um, because in the past, you know, China actually didn't support the annexation of Crimea publicly, for instance. 
um, because the the predicate of territory being annexed and lost is is not something that China wants to endorse. There's parts of you know what they think are parts of China, i.e., Taiwan, uh, that that you know the principle of sovereignty is sacrosanct to them. But this was a different statement in which Xi really seemed to wrap himself around Putin uh, and give him a lot of diplomatic cover. There was references to increased energy cooperation, which could be one way Russia tries to prevent the impact of sanctions. I have to think that if there's anyone in the world who Vladimir Putin has shared his intentions with outside of his inner circle in Russia, it would be Xi Jinping, because Russia will need China um, a lot, um, not just diplomatically, but perhaps, again, to help weather sanctions. And if he's going to do something, it wouldn't surprise me if he if he felt the need to give Xi a heads up. Because the other thing is, it wouldn't be a great look for Xi if Putin went to Beijing and then within a couple of weeks leaving, you know, invaded a country without giving him a heads up. I don't know. That's my my guess of it. I mean, were you as chilled as other people appear to be by that joint statement, uh, which was, uh, you know, you outlined some of the contours of it, but like it, it, it didn't sit well with me that the China and Russia are going to be, you know, like it really felt like the dark forces are amassing, you know, that the, the, everyone's gathering yeah. on Mount Batty to plot yeah. the demise of the world. It did. I mean, look, I, I wasn't, I can't say I was surprised. I think people should recognize it. This went beyond past Russian Chinese statements. It, it really did feel like them laying down a marker that, okay, we're now the alternative world order here and we really don't care what you guys think, and we're going to cooperate across the board. And that cooperation is going to be mainly based on this idea that they're they're kind of spheres of influence, right? So it's China telling us, stay out of Asia, Russia telling us, you know, stay out of Europe, or at least stay out of the former Soviet Union. Um, and that's the world we're in. So not a surprise, but seeing it kind of on paper, you know, um, at such a tense moment, um, yeah, that that's that's kind of the, the new world we're in here. Um, and that means a lot less maneuvering for us. Although um, I will say Xi Jinping, not as much a fan of Botox as uh, Vladimir Putin, apparently. No, no. A or he's more, just getting, he has a better dermatologist. Yeah. Maybe, it may be. Uh, he's got great hair, um, uh, also unlike Putin. Um, so the one, okay, making this transition, a weird thing about Iran diplomacy, which I was once a part of, is that Russia and China are actually a part of the ongoing negotiations to get a new nuclear deal and are supportive of it. <laughs> so it goes to remind you how strange um, geopolitics can be. Um, the update on this is that talks have resumed uh, today in Vienna um, between uh, the Iranians and the P5 plus one, that's the United States and our European allies and Russia and China. Um, the U.S. still not in direct talks with Iran, but um, some indications by Iran that that may happen this round. A lot of mood music that something uh, could, could happen in the next couple of weeks in terms of a deal, including the United States uh, under Secretary of State Tony Blinken's uh, leadership uh, signed several waivers uh, that allowed for sanctions to be relieved uh, on some of Iran's civilian nuclear activities. This is something that was a part of the last deal and is seen as I think kind of a confidence building measure to demonstrate that we're serious about wanting to get back into a deal. Um, Joe Biden also talked to the Israeli prime minister for the first time in a while, Naftali Bennett. Um, in that call, uh, Biden also indicated that he'd be traveling to Israel later this year. Um, that'll be interesting, Alex, <laughs> in an election year. Um, but the Israeli government continues to put out statements against the Iran deal. They're not nearly as hyperbolic uh, or histrionic as Bibi Netanyahu's statements used to be. Um, 
and frankly, we've had this kind of chorus of Israeli security experts say uh, that pulling out of the deal is bad for Israel. Uh, nonetheless, we saw you know some of the usual suspects laying down their markers. Uh, APAC putting out statements opposing a return to a deal. The the hawkish, uh, if you want to call him that, um, chairman of the foreign relations for the Democrats, Bob Menendez, who opposed the deal the first time around, also warning against this. Um, Alex, the way I wanted to put this question to you is, we all know what the Iran deal is. Um, we've litigated exhaustively the, the terms of it. We've seen what it was like with the deal. We've seen what it's like without. You'll recall a, a massive political fight in 2015 um, when this deal was reached for lasting months, right? Um, You'll recall it as well. I, yeah, I <laughs> Years later, I saw an Israeli uh, former uh, Mossad operatives like, you know, spying on me because of it. But anyway, um, what do you I think? Mean, the, they're like a dime a dozen, Ben. Uh, yeah, I mean, who among us has not had that? Who among um, us? But what do you think? How do you think that the political debate and fallout and focus on this will be this time around, you know, the sequel of the Iran deal versus last time. Do you think it'll be as intense or just kind of, eh, we've already seen this movie? No, I don't think it'll be as intense. I mean, part of it was so motivated by, it was such a vindictive maneuver when it was made, you know, like when, when, when it was reversed. And it was so much part of a broader portfolio of just destroying everything that Obama did, right? Really, in principle, that was it. I mean, of course, yes. There were detractors, but really, I mean, Trump's goal was to just destroy everything Obama had built. And that and so it became there was an emotional there there was kind of an emotional center at at the heart of, of, of all that maneuvering, I think. Now it's kind of like I'm sort of in a little bit of disbelief that we're even negotiating, given the fact that this is clearly a political football that gets moved around from administration to administration. And if you're looking at, you know, Joe Biden's candidacy in 2024, are you sure he's going to be around to make good on the terms of the deal? Um, But simply because it's been, you know, it's been agreed upon and then reversed and we're now back at the negotiating table, it, it sort of has a, you know, if it's Tuesday, it must be dot, dot, dot quality to it. I mean, I think, look, I, I, I don't want to say only negative things about our <laughs> our country yeah. and our audience's appetite for, um, you know, the, specific, the, the specifics of, of very important negotiations. But I think this one is one um, where there's going to be certain corners that rejoice in a deal being made. And, and actually, hopefully, the fact that it won't, I don't think, be a hugely impactful increases its chances of survival, right? The less it's yeah, a yeah. shiny object the greater, you know, it's, it's like Obamacare. It's like, you just, yeah, yeah, you just keep yeah. it around long enough. People get used yeah, to it and yeah, it stops, yeah. ha- it stops having the bank. Like nobody's talking about repealing Obamacare at this point. Right. Well, that, that's, you know, I, I think that would be the advice I'd give on the argument to make for them, which is that in the same way that once people tried to repeal Obamacare, it looked better. Yeah. Tearing up the JCPOA, the Iran deal made it look a lot better. Their argument should just be, Hey, look, it was working. Trump teared it up and look what happened. The Iranians almost got a nuclear weapon and we almost went to war a couple of times. Let's just go back to this thing and move on. Right. And no yeah. reason to drag it out. You know? Yeah. Just keep keep it quiet. <laughs> just do it. Keep it quiet. And like, let's just pretend everybody thinks it's still not in place. <laughs> Don't tell yes. the GOP. Yes. Uh, well, it, it would be, you know, it would be a, a, a success in, that could you know, uh, excite progressives, which is something that Joe Biden hasn't had on foreign policy uh, in a while, because Afghanistan, of course, was a complicated piece of business. Another success that he announced this week, 
um, was the killing of ISIS leader Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurayshi. Mm-hmm. I think I got that. I think you did. Um, it rolled off your tongue. So very mellifluous. I, you know, this is a character I first learned about back in 2014 because he was kind of a, uh, the leader of the effort to commit genocide against the Yazidis. That's the kind of guy this is, uh, a minority inside of Iraq. Uh, he was killed in a U.S. counterterrorism raid on Wednesday in northwest Syria, which is a region of Syria we don't usually operate in. Um, the most substantial raid we've done in the country since the 2019 operation that killed the last ISIS leader, um, I think the much greater known uh, founder of, uh, of ISIS, really, Baghdadi. Um, Qureshi blew himself up uh, with a suicide vest, presumably, as U.S. forces approached, um, which killed uh, a number of women and children with him, uh, according to, to U.S. officials. Um, Alex, uh, what do we make of this? Do Does this, you know, this, an event that once would have been, I think, a big story, yeah. felt like a kind of came and went in a day or two. Um, do you think people are still following the, the ISIS fight, still uh, understand there's a threat from ISIS? Like, what was your reaction to this? Well, I mean, I guess I don't really understand the magnitude of the threat from ISIS, right? On one hand, it's ISIS, right? <laughs> we know yeah. just our lizard brain tells us that is not a good organization. And, you know, the the cutting off of its head is, in theory, a good thing for national security. But it sounds... At least, you know, one of the things about ISIS, which always seems so infallible, was the idea that it's like a hydra. You cut off one head, another one grows. And yeah. so you'll never actually be able to dismantle the entire operation because of the cellular organization. And I guess I wonder, you know, in your understanding of this, Ben, like ISIS doesn't, isn't a caliphate. It's a caliphate in name yeah. only, right? It has no holdings yeah. as such. And I remember at the beginning of, you know, the, the dawn of al-Qaeda and then certainly with ISIS, everyone talked about the new model of terrorism being one where it was, there was no titular leadership. There was no real leadership. Everything was, you know, a a grassroots um, organization and could therefore never be dismantled. Has, has ISIS's defeat in a way disproven that theory that that's the new model of terrorism? Do you still, do you still need a leader to actually be successful? Because it sounds like while Koryashi is certainly, um, uh, I think a big deal for the Biden administration. It did not, I think, really register, you know, broadly. It's not like he's going to be able to run on that for re-election, um, though the the his seizure and killing was dramatic, um, or his death was dramatic. But I kind of just wonder, yeah. meaningfully, from you know, national security standpoint, does it like what, what's the model? What do we learn from this? I think, look, uh, Baghdadi, the, the first you know ISIS leader who was killed. Um, he was associated with the establishment of the caliphate and those successes. Um, he kind of became an iconic figure. He's the guy who declared the caliphate when they controlled all this territory in Iraq and Syria. So he was both an operational leader and, and more of a symbolic leader than this guy was, right? Um, so I don't think that this is comparable to taking out someone like that, who is you know, seen as the, you know, kind of at the vanguard of what ISIS was doing. And the reality is right now, ISIS poses a threat largely in in the region, in Syria and in Iraq, um, and their ability to project power has been diminished by this relentless campaign they've been under. Look, a leader matters, right? It's the person who knows, you know, all, where all the trains are running. To me, the, the benefit might also be that they went to his compound, so they got a bunch of information, presumably, hard drives, phones. They might tell you a lot about the current state of ISIS. Um, so it, it doesn't have the same impact as uh, it, it once would have because ISIS is not what it once was, right. you know, um, but it's it's an indication that this is still something we're doing. Um, but, yeah, it, I was struck by the fact that 
you know, in a healthy way, America may be moving beyond this kind of hyperfixation on on the war on terrorism that that something like this happens. It's well, and that the war on terror is changing too, right? Yeah, like yeah. that. That I'm just looking forward to what they find from Karashi's house. Didn't they find a bunch of like Far Side cartoons at Osama bin Laden's residence? Yeah, and there was. I mean, you know, I have to go back and check. There were there were rumors of porn. Um, yeah. You know, what are you uh, going to check? Do you have copies of what they still? What do you well, mean by that? <laughs> you gotta, like, I did. I did. I once did. Have, I, I like, once I did have these copies. See yeah, what I got. I once did have these copies, <laughs> but you know, uh, I, like I, my memory's hazy. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show Hysteria is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't. (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Okay, so we're going to, uh, you know, turning to a different flavor of, of extremism. Uh, we've obviously dealt with like a far right, anti-vax, uh, QAnon, uh, 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 you know, and, and the rest of it here in the U.S. You've covered this a lot on the circus, getting out and, and, and kind of going into these communities. We're going to talk about Canada, Alex, which uh, we, we don't talk about enough. I love Canada on this show. I have a lot of friends in Canada. Yeah. Um, I don't know how you feel about Canada. We can come back to that. Um, now, if you have been watching this out of the corner of your eye, uh, you've noticed that 
there's been a massive demonstration strike from Canadian truckers uh, centered in Ottawa, the capital. The mayor of Ottawa had to declare a state of emergency in response to more than a week of truckers' protests that also involved them honking horns and keeping people up all night, uh, you know, obviously disrupting traffic, uh, people urinating on statues, uh, some racist signs. Uh, You know, this started as an opposition to a vaccine mandate for truckers coming from Canada to the United States, and it kind of morphed into a bunch of other stuff and opposition to Justin Trudeau and the kind of you know pandemic fatigue that we've seen here. Um, the latest development is that the road uh, linking, uh, and, and the busiest link, frankly, between Canada and the United States, the Ambassador Bridge to Detroit, which the auto industry depends on for a lot of traffic, truckers are blocking that. So now this is you know potentially having even greater economic effects. It's already obviously hurt. Uh, the economy in Ottawa. Um, Justin Trudeau has you know, drawn a line. He won't negotiate with the truckers. He said they're trying to blockade our economy, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives, and this has to stop. Alex, um, <laughs> do these Canadian truckers remind you of MAGA people that you've uh, <laughs> seen in the United States, talked to in the United States? Mm-hmm. Are you reassessing whether Canada is on the list of places that you might move to if America descends into an authoritarian dystopia? What is going on in Canada? This is the right wing's version of intersectionality. (laughs) I think, right? We don't want we don't want vaccine mandates. We're racists. I'm sure some of these I don't know where the urinating on the statues comes from, but this is like, (laughs) you know, basically their version of that. Um. Yeah, absolutely. This reminds me of, you know, I spoke with um, members of a militia in Georgia about two weeks before the election who basically outlined on camera uh, their plans to um, stop the election if Joe Biden won it, stop it in some way with arms. Um, And we saw the harvest of that on January 6th. And the truckers absolutely remind me of that. First of all, um, you know, there's a generalized rage, right? And you see that borne out in their list of demands, which have just gone up the, like, you know, flagpole from basically repeal the vaccine mandate to all COVID protections need to be reversed. They just completely outlandish um, demands, um, a willful disconnect with uh, the world of facts, figures, and reality, um, but also a camaraderie and a certain yeah. perverted joy, in all of this. Yeah. Like I remember yeah. after I talked to the, these guys and we had a remarkably um, uh, very upfront, candid conversation. They walked away saying, we're going to scare the shit out of everybody who watches that. And yeah. there's a, there's a really um, nefarious joy that yeah. they, they um, glean or they gain from, from really um, making people scared, making people uncomfortable, um, fucking shit up basically. Yeah. And and that's yeah. what the truckers are doing for, I mean, they love that this is all unfolding in a kind of residential, a lot of these are kind of residential neighborhoods. You know, there are civil servants that live in this area that are, whose lives have been upended by this constant noise and traffic and chaos. Um, and that's part of the whole thing, right? That there are people installing hot tubs. There's like a sort of rowdy carnival-like yeah. atmosphere, which is something you see at every Trump rally, right? There's the, Hot uh, tubs and, I, and, and bouncy houses? I bouncy think, houses, so. yeah. Yeah, 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 this, yeah. I mean, it reminds me so much. Like, if you ever go to a Trump rally, and I'm not suggesting you should, but if you do, <laughs> you'll be struck by, and I wrote about this for The Atlantic, it has this kind of old-timey revival quality. Like, 
I really, yeah. it, so much of this is based in um, a real feeling of disconnection and loneliness and the, the yeah. crumbling of institutions like the church. Like people have found belonging and purpose and unity. And even if that unity and belonging and purpose is rooted in something inherently dark and um, destructive, it's still uniting them. And they they are yeah. happy to be together. And that's why the bond is so unbreakable with Trump's base and Trump or, you know, the right-wing truckers in Canada. They are, the purpose is not just about COVID. It's not just about, you know, getting in Trudeau's, uh, being thorns in his side and getting COVID mandates relaxed. It's, it's, it's about being together in this movement yeah, and yeah. having this time in the sun and enjoying it. And I see absolute um, cross-pollination between that movement there and what's happening in the United States. And it would not surprise me at all to see an exactly similar thing happen here in the U.S. Just like, you know, the yeah. anti-mask protests. I was in Australia this summer. Don't go there. Um, sorry, I love <laughs> Australia. And there were anti-mask protests in the street. And all the Australians I knew said, this is because of you fucking Americans. Yeah, yeah People yeah. watch each other do these crazy stunts. And the more attention they get, the more it's like, oh, let's do that here. That would be a good thing to do. It's so, been yeah. interesting, yeah, because there's been uh, expressions of solidarity from like the, the usual suspects you'd expect here on the right. A Canadian friend even sent me uh, a picture like someone was towing a, you know, a plane was towing like a like a, you know, letters in the air in Florida, of course, you know, the capital of MAGA saying, you know, Canadian truckers rule. Um, one of the interesting things is the Canadian right isn't as consolidated around this insanity as the American right. And kind of coincident to these protests, uh, the leader of the conservatives, Aaron O'Toole, stepped down because um, essentially he'd lost a vote of no confidence in his party. He was like a more moderate face of that party. And he kind of said on the way out, you know, it was kind of like, implicit statements of like, we should not be crazy, you know, um, but this may, you know, this may split the Canadian right, or maybe it'll consolidate things around crazy. And, and you know, you're right, they're going to, they're going to be feeding off of the support they get from the US. Another place where there's a crazy uh, populist right wing leader, <laughs> United Kingdom. Um, so uh, Alex, we're going to start, we're going to get this gets a little darker, but I, I, I thought on a lighter note, a uh, couple of Boris Johnson updates. There was a report that he told his new director of communications uh, that I will survive. Um, and he told him this by singing lines from the Glory Gaynor song yeah. uh, as he was appointed yeah. to the post. Um, he's, of course. You say been, that like you say that with a, an inflection at the end of your voice as if that's surprise. Is it something about the prime minister of England singing uh, 70s disco songs to his new communications director odd to you, Ben? Well, the question Did I was going to ask you, not Alex, do that to, uh, well, he had a better singing voice, but the, the question I have for you is, would you rather attend a Boris Johnson hosted garden party at number 10 at the height of lockdown, or would you rather be in a room where Boris Johnson was singing to you, I will survive? By oh my line, God. No that question. The private concert with Brian yeah. Bojo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually did the show a favor and Googled some of the lyrics to I will survive and and what's so interesting is it's a it's a survival it's a survival song obviously it's a it's a rebuke. I feel bad for the communications director because the chorus of it is "Go on now, go walk out the door, just turn around now because you're not welcome anymore." This yeah. is the new comms director. Yeah, it, it just it, he's a he's a real he he can, marches can to I, the beat of his own drum, Bojo. 
I'm just going to guess, too, that there's not a lot of shelf life for a comms director for Boris Johnson these days. <laughs> it's like, like being Kanye West's press yeah, secretary. Yeah, you're so going to you be blamed and thrown under the bus for something. Now, one of those things is where it takes a little bit of a darker turn. Um, in, in recent days, there was a, a scary event with Keir Starmer, the labor leader and friend of the pod, David Lammy, who were kind of surrounded by an angry mob um, who were shouting at them, calling them traitors, calling them uh you know, pedophile protect protectors. Now the backstory is that Boris Johnson made a shot at Starmer in Parliament recently, accusing him of failing to prosecute uh, a former prominent British television personality, Jimmy Seville. Uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, but this guy had become famous in the '60s, but was later revealed to be a child abuser. Uh, and prosecutors had decided not to prosecute him because of insufficient evidence. Starmer was a prosecutor, but didn't make that decision. You know, the the accusation, including from some in the conservative party, some in Boris Johnson's party, is that, you know, by stirring up this kind of rage at Starmer, he put him potentially at risk. And people saw that on television. Uh, one MP in, uh, in Boris Johnson's own party tweeted, uh, PM apologized, please let's stop this drift towards a Trumpian style of politics from becoming the norm. We are better than this. That was conservative Tobias Elwood. Um, Alex, do you see Boris... <laughs> He's reaching for different ways to survive, um, singing uh, ugly charges of protecting pedophiles. Mm -hmm. um, I believe it's known as the kitchen sink strategy. Exactly. I was going to say, how do you see this working out for Boris? I don't know, man. I mean, if history is any guide, I think he survives. I don't. I mean, I just truly don't know. I, I think politics in this day and age rewards insanity. Everybody's become five to seventeen percent more crazy around the world, everywhere, right? Canada, the nice place, yeah. is like a hotbed of insurrection. Like the prime minister of England, you, you and I grew up in the 80s and 90s, Ben. Like yeah. the prime, what is happening? Yeah. Like Boris, yeah. first of all, I still am not over the fact that Boris Johnson <laughs> is the prime minister. Yeah. And I just think we cling to this idea of sort of institutional um, gentility that that people are going to play by the rules because the rules are the thing that got them into office. You know, the system got them there. The system is what they're tasked with managing. And yet we seem to only want people who break things, um, you know? Yeah. And I, I would say that to some degree on both sides of the aisle, there's just this desire for, you know, someone who is not, is going to tear the shackles off. And, um, you know, Johnson's incredibly idiosyncratic. He's completely unafraid. And I think, you know, politicians who are completely unafraid and willing to do anything are um, formidable adversaries, I guess, in a way. I don't know. What yeah. do you think? I think, I mean, he's clearly taken a big hit. Um, I think that the, you know, I'm going to take a page out of what you said earlier, because I, I mentioned the same thing in, in a recent Atlantic piece about the need for joy in the fight against Trumpism here. The same thing applies to Trudeau and Starmer, right? Like, Boris Johnson at least used to make things look fun. Now he took it a little too far with the partying. I think Starmer's got a great line of critique here that Boris Johnson cares more about himself than you, right? That's that's a good line to use against someone. But I, I do think that it can't just be kind of grim-faced anger. And I'm not saying that's what Starmer or Trudeau are doing, but that you know, we get offended and that's our reaction. You know, with Johnson, you can go at him with humor. You you make fun of the guy. Like, you know, um, have some fun in the fight against this brand of populism, right? Create the same kind of community that they're feeling around the effort to defeat them, right? I think that's what's going to be necessary for someone like Starmer 
to go the to to not just prosecute the case against Boris, but to to build a governing majority for next time. You know. Yeah, humor is distinctly missing, and I think I understand why because some of the stuff is so serious. It's really yeah. hard to be funny about it. But yeah. you know, probably the biggest punch that was ever landed on Donald Trump was when Barack Obama talked about him starring in the new season of Orange Is a New Black or whatever it yeah. was that he said at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah. Humor is an incredibly potent weapon um, in all these fights. Well, well, no good way to transition to to just a tragic. <laughs> like, uh, speaking of something yeah. that's not at all. I, I, funny. Yeah, Tommy's really good at these transitions, and I'm so I've been trying. But on this one, I, I, just you know, be when you, you. Just be I, you. I'm just gonna be me. Um, you're the host. You're, you're you're much more expert at hosting. This is your show, brother. Um, look, you and I, you know, been friends for a long time, and one thing that we've long talked about is is Burma. You um, come from uh, a Burmese background on your mom's side. Um, written about it extensively. Uh, I worked on it. Uh, you actually interviewed me back in the day from uh, from Burma. Um, yeah. And 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 we've obviously watched. Uh, this is basically just past the one year anniversary of uh, the coup that brought the Burmese military back into power and saw Aung San Suu Kyi and the basically elected government scattered, thrown in prison. Um, it's been a rough year for the people uh, of Burma, uh, people of Myanmar. Um, yes, the, the military is in power, but everything is going wrong. Um, and chiefly the Burmese people are suffering. Thousands of people have uh, either been killed or disappeared or, or imprisoned, but also, you know, the economy's collapsing. People aren't working. Schools are literally closed. Uh, the currency's plunged. Uh, the economy is 30% smaller, um, than it was before the coup. There are blackouts. The Economist had a good summary of basically all the ways in which this has been horrible um, for the people of Burma. And though they've shown much more resistance than I think the coup leaders thought there would be. There's a kind of unity government in exile. There's some armed opposition uh, in parts of the country. Um, what What is your sense, Alex, as someone who cares about this personally, who's looked at it professionally? Uh, how should we be thinking about the future um, and and the timeline at which this nightmare might end, and 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 how how are you thinking about this as someone you know in the past the diaspora was important to supporting Aung San Suu Kyi and and her political party the NLD. Um, how, what are your reflections on a year uh, out from the coup? Oh, I mean, it's it's just Burma is so shrouded in heartbreak in my you know in my mind for all obvious reasons. Um, I think this situation, I mean, it's it's so bad what's happening there, right? I've been incredibly heartened to see how, um, you know, students and activists have responded so courageously, so bravely um, against really all odds. But I think the whole, you know, the clarity of the late 90s, was pretty profound. There was Aung San Suu Kyi, this woman who had won the Nobel Prize, the Peace Prize in 91 from under house arrest, couldn't accept the prize. You know, her story was so, it was like Star Wars, right? Like there was the good side and the bad side. And uh, the world was able to kind of focus on Burma because I think those lines were so clear. She was such a compelling hero and the evil of the military hunter was so um, tangible in a way. Um, It was so easily read, the situation. And then Aung San Suu Kyi comes to power effectively and is someone that effectively sanctions the genocide of the Rohingya minority and the Muslim minority in um, the western part of, southwestern part of Burma. And 
the water and to tr- try tr- to try to placate the military to try to yes. show the military that she wasn't an existential threat to them. Well, and, and also and that, and bet, I, that bet didn't work out. Yeah. Know? But also because there's a strong strain of Buddhist yes, nationalism yeah, that is yeah. like rampant throughout Burma that I yes, read about in yeah. my book. Yeah. Do go check it out. It's available in paperback. Oh, future face. Check future it out. face. Um, and, you know, and something darker was revealed about something more complicated was revealed about the soul of Aung San Suu Kyi and, and indeed the soul, the of, soul of Burma, Burma uh, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. so ashamed. And so now we have a reversal of fortunes again, but we don't have the clarity of a heroine and an evildoer. We don't know. I mean, certainly uh, Suu Kyi's, you know, government effectively was better, I think. I mean, unless you're a Rohingya or you're a Muslim was, in the country. Yeah, it, it was, was better. There was, right? But like, it, it wasn't, I mean, they were still genocidal or looking the other way or diminishing genocide, right? At best. And that not just being inconvenient for the storytelling of Burma also makes, you know, the, the outrage over the coup like a little bit less, I and, and not for me, but for other people, I think urgent because the people that were toppled were doing bad shit too. Well, I was going to ask you a question though, which is that the, the hopeful sign, if you follow the opposition that has emerged, uh, you've seen uh, Burmese politicians, you know, uh, Buddhist Burmese uh, really unite with the ethnic minority groups in the country, right? And for people who don't follow this, you know, there are a lot of ethnic groups in 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 Myanmar, um, some of whom have been fighting against the government, against the military there for decades. And who are trained so, and, and have weapons yes, in many cases. Yes, who have weapons. Which is important um, when you're fighting the Burmese military. Yes. But I will say that that national unity government um, has also made positive statements about the Rohingya. Like there seems to be a recognition that, hey, uh, if we want democracy we have to actually all come together across different ethnic groups and religious groups. That may just be that they're forced to do that by circumstance, but um, that does feel like if there's something positive that's come out of this, it's the forging of, a, of an identity among the opposition that is not just about one human being, Aung San Suu Kyi, and that might be, uh, I don't know, more... Uh, diverse and inclusive view. Well, of, of, a strong, uh, a stronger coalition because it's not yeah. the worship of one, but you know the protection of all. I yeah, I'm hopeful. Except that oftentimes when the, the the sort of more enlightened forces come to the fore, the infighting and the squabbling can be pretty intense. But perhaps because the stakes are so high and because everything's so hard won in Burma. Um, the urgency will be there to really unite in a concerted effort. I mean, I am having a hard time saying something positive, but I completely agree with you, Ben. Uh, uh, the, 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 you know, it, it is heartwarming. Heartwarming's too, um, yeah. it's, it's too mealy mouthed a term, but it, it's yeah. it's invigorating to see that happening with those groups. I just the the junta is, you know, General Lang. They're so bad. They're so absolutely fucking evil, and yeah. they have so much firepower. And they will shoot children in the streets. And when you're faced with that, any kind of, you know, grassroots, citizen-led, activist-led organizing is up against a very steep challenge. Um, My heart is with them, obviously, but, um, you know, it's been a long, uh, it's the 20th and 21st centuries have been long ones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, it gets better as it goes. I mean, the one thing I would say is that, Governments should not normalize this uh, coup regime. Um, 
you know, not just the U.S. and Europe, but so far, you know, ASEAN, the Southeast Asian neighbors who are very important uh, to Myanmar, they've they've been strong in some ways. They've not allowed Min Aung Lang, the junta leader, to come to their summits. I think they could go farther and just kind of icing out uh, Myanmar altogether as long as this government's there. Um, the reality is, is this not only is this a terrible government for the people of, of Myanmar, but it's it's not exactly a stable place. Mm-mm. In fact, you've seen a surge in, uh, you know, spike in the drug trade and and obviously the uh, refugee flows. So when things are going poorly in Myanmar, it actually is bad for the neighbors. So they have, you know. Yeah, well, it's all roads lead back to Xi Jinping. And yes. To the beginning of our conversation. Well, let's end there. I mean, you flagged this story in Axios, um, kind of summing up that uh, hasn't been the easiest beat to cover the Olympics that have started. Um, a Dutch reporter had a live shot that was uh, mysteriously ended by a plainclothes uh, security guy who had a badge that read public safety volunteer, which was a nice uh, way of looking at it. Um, we've heard other uh, international journalists say they were followed, harassed. Um, you know, in recent years, it's been harder for, for journalists to get visas. Alex, you're a journalist. Um, what who went to China? <laughs> Who went to China? What what happens when a country that is, you know, one of the two richest and most powerful countries in the world and has over a billion people, it becomes literally impossible to do journalism there. And and, 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 and it's like a of great strategic importance to uh, importance to all of our lives. And to <laughs> our lives, to markets, to entertainment. Everything. Uh, I mean, you know, and, and how do you cover events like the Olympics that are basically propaganda? vehicles for the right. regime that's if you can't you know, right yeah that's the thing if they're like this over the olympics like what was it yeah. a, li- a live shot of like a bobsledding like what what could yeah, what, what, were, what were they gonna see that they shouldn't have seen it's a yeah. terrible indicator especially when you compare it to beijing's posture in 2008, when they had the Summer Olympics, when it was, yeah. I don't know if you remember that, Ben, but it was like, welcome to China. It was like a big tourism ad for China. And it was like, yeah. this is the land of, you know, golden eternity and, you know, prosperity and, you know, great history. And, you know, it was like the great wall, the terracotta soldiers came to life and were extending their arms, welcoming you to, you know, um, to relish, to, to roll around in the history yeah. of China. And now yeah. it's like, you know, the cameramen are getting clocked in the face and, you know, it's just, it, it it's symbolic of the way the world's going, I think a little bit, right? Like um, yeah. the Chinese don't feel like they need to prove anything to the West. It, it, the, the Chinese yeah. feel like they have the winning hand, that, 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 that they can run the tables and like, fuck you and the fourth estate. And it is a, a terrifying indicator of, you know, the freedoms that they um, intend on, I don't even think preserving is the word. It's a terrifying indicator of their attitude towards freedom in general, right? If this is what they're doing to journalists in the West at the Olympics, I mean, what do we think the future looks like for those inside yeah. China and for the Uyghurs and for the Taiwanese? I mean, what do we what do we think but um, terrible thoughts? It's it's, And in such a short time. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it also means that Media companies, we've t- you know corporations. Everybody's going to have to be rethinking their operations in in China because it's this stuff is going to get worse, not better, right? And so, you know, the, the capacity to put up with this because you want in the market or because you want to broadcast something or what have you, you know, like it's just going to get harder, not easier. You know, and and like so much media, whether yeah. it's streaming media, whether it's the entertainment industrial complex, is. Um, contingent is predicated is dying for the Chinese market. So it just complicates that effort even more. Yeah. 
I am not in China yet. My sales are mostly in America. Well, one place you could go is North Korea, where, uh, you know, just to end here, Kim Jong-un was uh, recently, after kind of being out of sight a lot recently, uh, appeared in some propaganda videos, uh, having lost a lot of weight. Uh, he's riding a white horse um, kind of into the sunset or through a forest. Um, one shows him in a clip on, on, on the beach on the horse. <laughs> Uh, looking at the sunset. It's I mean, very you... romantic. It reminded yeah. me of a sandals, like all inclusive um, getaway resort in the in Florida. <laughs> Only it was Kim Jong Un. Uh, yeah, um, and and North Korea, and uh, presumably not not accessible to you or I for that. Pyongyang's um, not usually known for its all inclusive resorts. Yeah, not, not, not yet, but uh, yeah. if then. Trump had just had a couple more years, maybe we would have gotten there, a Trump, Trump hotel. Do if there know, is one, the first one will be a Trump hotel. I mean, I can see a partnership, brand partnership. There's a lot of, um, they're aligned. Mar-a-Lago um, Pyongyang. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it works for me. I think yeah. I can see it. I, yeah. I do want to let you know that in, um, in the uh, in the 2010 to 2013, somewhere in there, my screensaver, my desktop, was Putin on a white horse. Do you remember that photo? He was shirtless. Oh yeah, that's that's a good one. That's a classic. Yeah, yeah. that's there. We're all we're all we're all singing from the same hymn book. If you are a despotic leader, and you want to you know gin up your positives, get on a horse. I don't I don't know. Get, get on a horse. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it's a lot dated, but you know. Maybe it still resonates out there. I don't know. It's ro- it's romantic. Well, Alex, where? Thank you for doing this. Where can so people can follow you and all these? This what's coming up? Uh, circus, MSNBC. Well, uh, this, uh, well, I'll be on MSNBC uh, a lot next week and the following week. I will be. So we begin shooting the circus at the end of the month. The season premiere is on March sixth. Um, you can always find me on Twitter at ooh. Alex Wagner. Yeah. And uh, if you're on the North Fork of Long Island and feel like uh, pan roasting some sausages with me for dinner tonight, come on over. I, I would love that. I would love that. I'm a few hours away, but you know, I'll see what I can do. Planes are fast, Ben. Supersonic <laughs> travel these days. Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much, Alex, for doing this. We really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. It was always, it, it was always, it's always it, it, good it to is talk always. with you. And it was great to talk with you. Well, I will see you in somewhere MSNBC or, uh, you know, sausages on the North shore, one of these places. God willing. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. 
The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. Okay, I am very pleased uh, to welcome to the podcast uh, the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas. Prime Minister, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, I, I want to start before we get to Russia, um, just to give people some context of Estonian politics, because uh, your journey is kind of interesting and, and speaks to some of the challenges uh, in putting coalitions together in, in your part of the world. Um, we met when you had already received the most votes um, in a national election, but you were not able to form a coalition that time. And it took the collapse of that government for you to finally uh, take your position. Can you just explain a bit how uh, you went from that first election to actually becoming prime minister? Uh, well, yes, I, I worked as an attorney at law for for most of my uh, working t- uh, working life, and and when I went to politics the first time, um, I I got a personal mandate. But the second time, uh, after I've been already a member of the European Parliament, I. I um, was running a party, I was leader of the party and uh, my party won the elections. I got the most votes as a, as a person, as a single um, electee. And, um, and then uh, I tried to form a government, but uh, all the other parties, um, well, they teamed against me, or teamed up against me. So I didn't get to form a government um, uh, at that time. Um, and so, after two years, when the government collapsed, then I got this uh, chance to put the government together. But, uh, but of course, uh, um, that was the most difficult time, meaning that uh, the first day I took office, I already had a government meeting uh, that I had to decide on restrictions because of COVID. And, and after that, we have one crisis after the other. Uh, COVID hasn't left us, uh, but uh, we have energy crisis, which means electricity prices, energy prices going really up and, and uh, are disturbing or, or bringing up some huge issues for the people. And we have the uh, security crisis that we see unfolding around Ukraine and definitely very directly influencing or affecting us as well. Yeah, no, and, and and for listeners, part of what was uh, disruptive the first time was a, a far right party uh, yeah. joining the the coalition with the center. So it was good that you were able to to weather that. Um, so I, I, shifting to the current security crisis, um, you know, before we get into the the issues, I'm just curious, what is the mood in in Estonia among the people? Uh, how how worried are people? How closely are they following things? How much do they feel like their own security is implicated, and not just the people of Ukraine? Uh, well, um, we don't see any direct threat to, uh, at our borders, uh, any military threat we don't see. Uh, and um, people are somewhat, I would say, uh, um, tranquil about this, not really nervous about this. 
um, what is happening there. But we are following very closely because it definitely has uh, effects on us, uh, on our economy, on our, you know, security, and um, and um, also on on the possible asylum seekers that might come and and everything so so the bigger picture is really really not that uh, good um and um our people don't uh, really see the direct threat but uh, but at the same time uh, we see what uh, russia is doing around ukraine and and we look uh, look at it uh, with uh, with the great worry um so um we try to help Ukraine in every way we can, politically, but also with uh, different uh, uh, means. Uh, we try to support them with their defense, uh, because uh, if you look at the map, then Ukraine is in the middle of Europe. And it's, it's not only a fight about Ukraine, but it's also a fight about the, the values. Why Russia is doing this, or why Russia has been doing this for some time, if we think back, you know, Crimea, if we think back uh, on, on Donbass, um, the, uh, and when they started this was because of Maidan. And why? Because it's not about, uh, you know, the military power, but it's about yeah. uh, uh, Ukraine uh, going to the democratic way uh, so that they have actually, you know, democratic uh, um, elections and, and they, you know, sort of fall yeah. to the Western values. And this is a threat, a direct threat to Russia. Um, when uh, they see that it's a threat uh, to how they operate, or, or Kremlin, I would say, operate. Yeah. Uh, there are two things that are, uh, they are worried about, you know, what is different. One is that in a democratic country, uh, you know, you have elections from time to time. If I make mistakes as a, as a prime minister and every every leader of a country makes uh, mistakes or, or, or something that the public doesn't really uh, like, so I will not be elected the next time. And, and this is, yeah. this is, you know, I, I, I'm held accountable on the elections. But he doesn't have that threat because, uh, yeah. you know, in the autocratic regimes, uh, you are there and then you are there. Uh, and the other thing, what they are worried about um, is um, the, the state being there for the people. So, I mean, every decision what we make is like, how does it make life better for the people? And the yeah. state serves the people, whereas in autocratic regimes, it's, it serves the, uh, the leader or, uh, you know, the autocrat or and yeah. people around him and this is something uh, that he wants to prevent and so all the countries um, that go to the direction uh, um, of a democratic uh, you know way of life uh, it's a threat that they see and causing this disruption will prevent them joining European Union, will prevent them joining yeah. NATO, will also prevent them doing the reforms that they need to do in order to uh, get the um, uh, corruption um, uh, and another, you know, uh, get the country clear yeah. and, and good on the uh, reforms path, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I, that, that definitely brings true. Um, you mentioned uh, NATO and uh, obviously part of the debate around this, part of the Russian demands around this have been no future uh, NATO enlargement, no membership for Ukraine, but also NATO kind of pulling back its posture to um, 1997 to, to kind of pre-enlargement, pre 
Estonia joining the alliance. Uh, and I was wondering for, you know, for listeners mainly in, in the US, um, could you explain how important has NATO membership been to Estonia? And, and what would it mean for Estonia if, um, if, you know, essentially the demand was met to kind of pull back uh, to, to a previous NATO force posture, uh, or to uh, restrict any military exercises in and 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 NATO uh, countries on the east. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, yes, um, we have been. Uh, we were independent country uh, since 1918, and we lost our independence uh, uh, because of uh, Russia and the Soviet uh, aggression in 1940. So, so. Uh, uh, this is the history. So we were 50 years under the rule of uh, Soviet Union. Uh, and, and so when we regained our independence in 1991, the basic principle of our foreign policy was that we are never alone again. And what does it mean? It means that we are active participants in all the organizations that actually are a guarantee to our uh, our independence and are being us a sovereign state. Um, so, so we moved fast really in this regard because we lost the independence in 1940s because we thought that we are, you know, off okay uh, on our own being a neutral country. But uh, being just a very small country with 1.3 million inhabitants, uh, plus uh, in the geographical position that we are, we basically have two choices, whether to be with the West or to be with Russia. Uh, if yeah. you think that we are alone, you know, we don't need anybody, then our aggressive neighbor takes over. We have seen this in the past. So uh, yeah. our principle was that never alone again. That meant that we applied for the European Union membership, but also the NATO membership. Uh, in NATO, um, our defense here is based on two pillars. One is our own defense, uh, that we invest more than 2% uh, of GDP to uh, 2.4% yeah. to be precise, and uh, collective defense of NATO. And what it really means, it means that, uh, you know, Article 5 of NATO, which says that attack on one is attack on all, uh, that if Russia attempts something towards us, it also means that uh, he attacks the US, for example, being allies in NATO. And that is a big uh, deterrence for our uh, our aggressive neighbor, but it also a big part of our security. Uh, as I've you know used this example several times, but I I think it's a good example that you know if you have a school bully uh, and you are a small small um, uh, country like we are, then it helps if you have big friends, so that yeah, you know the yeah. school bully uh, you know knows that if I pick up a fight with them uh, because I, I'm stronger than than they are uh, but but am I really up to picking a fight with those big guys and if if not yeah. then I'm I'm taking up uh, maybe other other ways so yeah and 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 so essentially the idea of of you know the US uh, agreeing with Russia that that it's in some fashion, you know, troops will be removed and, and NATO won't have any posture in this Eastern countries, um, won't even have military exercises on your soil. It, to you guys, that's kind of 
uh, an existential question. <laughs> if, I, I think sometimes people hear these these concepts and don't understand why uh, that might be problematic to some members of the NATO alliance. You know? Yeah, yeah, true. I, I mean, if we have even even around the you know the European Union table, sometimes I think that um, uh, you know discussions about defense. They are like the theoretical discussions for some of the allies, whereas yeah. for us, yeah. it is ex- existential issue, uh, the issue that we are dealing every day. Uh, so, yeah. so it's not the theoretical thing. I mean, if you would ask me as a prime minister, would I would I want to invest to defense or <laughs> yeah, the yeah. education system? Of course, I would rather invest yeah. to the education system. But again, being in the geographical position where we are, we just don't have other choice because we want to be independent country. And as coming to the military exercises, uh, if again you look at the map, we are a small country. If the agreement is that uh, there are no military exercises close to NATO's border, we are practically the border, which means the whole country. And and then we can't practice uh, how we could act uh, in in case somebody is attacking us. And um, you know I. What has to be kept in mind also the attitude towards agreements on the western side versus the Russian side is totally different. Uh, Russia wants to get the agreement with the West because that's already something that that's the achievement because Russia knows that the West, uh, in the West, one of the principles is that, you know, agreements have to be followed, which means that the West NATO will follow, you know, we agreed and we don't do this. This is our promise. But uh, Russia is not keeping their side of the promises or the agreements. So they just want us to keep the side of the promises, which is detrimental to our defense. Uh, there was Antony Blinken's very good speech in, in Berlin, where he also pointed out um, this um, agreement regarding the nuclear arsenal of Ukraine, uh, that are they happy? that they gave this up are people in crimea and donbas happy now that they gave this up by this agreement because russia is not keeping their side of it yeah well looking forward um i i guess there 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 you know there're more than two scenarios but to to simplify it there you know there's a scenario of a russian invasion uh, and then there's a scenario of some de-escalation in the scenario where there is a a russian uh, a pretty significant russian military intervention. Um, what what are you worried about in terms of uh, Estonian security? In other words, do you worry about a situation, let's say there's, there's sanctions in response, um, cyber attacks, uh, propaganda campaigns, influence operations, uh, interference in Estonian politics, you know, short of a military conflict? Because I think sometimes people think, oh, it's, you know, there's, there's a war and then then there's a, a places yeah. where there is no conflict, but Estonia could find itself in this hmm. this in between space. Um, migrants, you mentioned, refugees from Ukraine. What, what are you What are you concerned about in the possibility of a of a of a conflict? Yeah, this is uh, you are very correct that. Uh, um, even if we don't have a big conflict, we might have a series of small conflicts. And, and I think uh, the small conflicts are much easier to organize, but they are just as, as, as bad, if I may say so. Yeah. Uh, you know, cyber attacks. If, um, you know, electricity grid is, is attacked uh, or, or 
you know, we are still connected to uh, Russia um, with um, electricity grid. Um, so, so I mean, um, always when you have the connections, it also might hurt you uh, the other side. There's a good book um, uh, by Mark Leonard uh, called The Age of Unpeace actually talking about these things that, you know, in the global world, we are more co connected than ever, but uh, it uh, really matters to whom you are connected to, because the other side of the connection might also hurt you. Um, yeah. So if you are not connected to friends, uh, make sure that, I mean, be aware that the other side might uh, might use this connection in a different different way. So, of course, the military conflict we are very worried about. If uh, you know they are really attacking uh, Ukraine, Kiev, uh, if they're making their moves, what we have seen before uh, regarding Crimea, uh, Donbas, you know, uh, it's very hard to go back. I mean, uh, yeah. because uh, when something is taken, then already you know, the discussions will be that um, that uh, let them not move forward. But uh, nobody yeah. really discusses that, well, 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 wait, um, shouldn't Crimea be given back and, and Donbass and, and all these things. Uh, so, yeah. so this is clearly, they're moving one step further, which means closer to us as well. But, uh, but the other side of it is the, you know, the implications to our, uh, um, or to the whole of Europe, actually. Uh, one is, um, you know, the, the war being really close. Uh, and and it, again, if you look at the map, Ukraine is in the center of Europe, really. Uh, so yeah. it has an effect. And, and the other side is, of course, economical effect that we are afraid of, plus all the multiple conflicts we see or saw even uh, during summertime. And when it gets warmer, we probably see it again, a hybrid uh, attack on the Belarusian European border, pushing the migrants over, over the border, which is overwhelming uh, the systems of, uh, of uh, um, police and, and border guard in, uh, in Latvia, Lithuania and, uh, and Poland. Also, some, something like that could happen also our uh, Russian border. We don't see it right now, but it's also a possibility. Uh, cyber attacks, um, definitely something that we should uh, be uh, afraid of or, or looking into. So we are uh, yeah. trying to make uh, also preparations as much as we, we can for, for such cases. And and what do you see as the the what would be the best case scenario? You know, what's the optimistic scenario? Is it this the, some path of de-escalation through the European negotiations that President Macron and others are having? Uh, uh, do you see a way out of this that is uh, that that has uh, Vladimir Putin taking the pathway of uh, of not further militarily intervening in Ukraine? Well, um, I wouldn't, I, first of all, I wouldn't say that they are negotiations because I think, you know, negotiating is already a trap because you have to offer something. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, there were, I think um, this is this is exactly the case uh, of uh, of the Russian negotiation tactics. That first they demand the, the maximum, maximum. They don't meekly ask, but demand something that has never been 
theirs. And then second is that they present ultimatums. And third is that, you know, they are already there that people in the West are offering them something. And, and then yeah. even if, if uh, they don't attack, uh, uh, you know, do the military attack in Ukraine, they have already received something that they didn't have before, you know, be it, uh, you know, military exercises or, or something yeah. uh, that they didn't have before. So we should be very, very careful. I think we should have um, this strategic patience uh, talking to Russia. I think it's good, you know, having the dialogue. But uh, but not really negotiating uh, because yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, you know negotiations always mean uh, mean uh, you know giving in something. Although uh, there's also I mean years ago I, I read a book by Chris Voss. Um, it was uh, uh, never split the difference regarding the negotiation tactics of the FBI um, uh, hostage crisis. Yeah. So, yeah. so he said there that, you know, in the business, uh, you usually negotiate like take two and I take two, it's win-win, but you can't have such negotiation tactics when there are hostages so that to kill two, I take two, we are fine. So I think we should have the same attitude towards Russia that uh, uh, has, as uh, you know, this Chris Voss. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, may, may, might get through. Well, look, thanks so much for talking to us. Before you go, I want to ask you one one question to just lighten things at the end. You're the kind of leader, I think, that a lot of our audience kind of roots for in the global political debates. What do you, we've, you know, we've talked about Ukraine and you've dealt with COVID. What's been your favorite part about being prime minister? What do you, what do you like about your job on a day-to-day -day basis? Uh, yeah, um, well, that's, uh, what, what I, what I like about the job is that I get to work with uh, some of the smartest people in Estonia and and yeah. by by the end of this prime ministership I will be very smart because they draft me all <laughs> kinds of memos about all the questions that I want to want to know uh, also you know uh, uh, the memos are really really good but um, but um, um, yeah, so so I think this is uh, this is something that is definitely positive. Yeah, no, I know the feeling. I, being in government, you just you, they're experts everywhere on any yeah. any given topic. You know, you can just uh, it's a very unique situation. Well, we're 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 thankful you could join us, and and uh, I know you're very busy. Uh, best of luck with everything you're, you're doing, and and we'll be thinking about the people of Estonia going forward. All the best. Thanks to Kaya Kallis for giving us that perspective from Estonia um, and for being a sitting prime minister on Podsi of the World. That's always exciting. Um, thanks, Alex Wagner, for guest hosting today. Um, uh, continue to be thinking about Tommy, um, but grateful that Alex could, could step in today and, uh, and, and fill that role so well. And thank you, of course, for listening. We'll see you next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. <laughs>